Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. While you're turning there, go ahead and keep turning there. I'm going to pray for us. Don't feel like you've got to stop turning. Turn there, and I'm going to pray for us as we get started today, okay? Pray with me. Father, Lord, I'm never, I never cease to be amazed, dear God, dear Lord, at, at just how weak I feel right before this moment every Sunday, dear God, before we get to open your word, dear God, and before you come among us, dear God, and Lord, here's what I, I know, dear God, I'm insufficient for the task before us, dear God, but I know that your spirit is powerful and present, Father, and I just pray over the next few minutes you would be in this place with us to help us hear from you, to help us see you, to help us live in all of you, that we might become more like you, that we might fall more in love with you and leave here, dear Lord, dear Lord, slightly, just ever so slightly more in love with you than when we came in so that everything in our life becomes about you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 2. Pray, uh, read the text with me. This is a good story. Mark 2, 1 through 12, one of my favorite stories of Jesus. It says, And when he had returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. Okay, like it's a big crowd. Imagine uh, some of you guys uh, come in uh, late on some Sundays, right? And uh, it's already full in here and you're struggling to find a seat. That's the scene that we have as Jesus is preaching at at Capernaum when he's back home, right? There there are no more seats in the room. There's no uh, more room for anybody to come in. So much so that there was not even room at the door, right? Things have gotten bad here. We're not quite there yet. Like We're like keeping the doors open so someone else can, can peek their head in. This, this is a packed house. And notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is preaching the word to them. And they came. Who came? Four men bringing to him a paralytic. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof And when they had an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. Now, real quick, let's talk about this. In in ancient Israel, houses would have most likely been uh, one-room dwellings, maybe with like a little half wall separating uh, a bedroom, if you will, from the rest of the house. Well, one-room dwelling, one big open room with a large flat roof. And on this roof, it would have been laid over panel by panel, and thatch and, and earth would have been put on the roof. And on each roof, there was a stairway to the roof because you wanted to make the most use of the space. People could also use the roof for multiple purposes. So what we see here in Mark chapter 2 is that as these paralytic, as the men bring this paralytic to Jesus, they can't get in the door, so they uh, rather creatively go up the, la- uh, the stairway on the side of the house and then knock a hole in the roof, right? That's pretty awesome. We'll talk about that in just a second. And lower the man down to Jesus' feet. Now notice what Jesus, what happens here. Verse 5 may be one of the most intriguing verses in the New Testament because it's really hard to explain. Look what it says. When Jesus saw their faith, he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, real quick, who is their faith? Well, obviously, we're talking about the paralyzed man. He obviously had faith here. But it seems to me that God, Jesus is not also only looking at the paralytic's faith. He's looking at the faith of the four men who he's brought with him who have brought him to Jesus. Now, this is a theological anomaly, but Jesus seems to be saying that your faith and what Jesus can do can have an impact on someone else's saving faith. I can't, 
Theologically, we can't explain that, all right? But that's what Jesus seems to be implying. He saw their faith. He looked at the man and said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, notice what Jesus said. Son, your sins are forgiven. Not what we were expecting Jesus to say, was it? What we, what were, hey, son, get up and walk. Not what he says. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, get this image real quick. Real quick. Jesus says, hey, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and the Pharisees and the lawyers of the day, the people who know the Bible, say, hey, wait just a second. Who can, why are you talking like this? Because as far as we know, only God can forgive sin. So get this. They don't have an invalid complaint here. Jesus is speaking in the place of God, and they're like, oh, you can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. Let me explain it to you this way. Uh, I'm going to use Clint as an example. Clint, raise your hand. I know Clint likes being called out in church. It's really awesome. We'll have a conversation about it later. Clint, Clint is, is, a, is a rather big dude, right? He's got a lot of muscle going on. If Clint came up here on the stage, God forbid, and punched me in the face, I'd be in a world of hurt, okay? But now, in that moment, if Clint were to come punch me in the face, Jenna could not look to Clint and forgive him for punching me in the face. It's not as if she could say, hey, Clint, don't worry about it. Probably deserved it, right? You're good. I forgive you. All right? Why? Because Jenna's not the one who's been punched. Only the punch E can forgive sins. Does that make sense? So if Clint needs forgiveness, who's he need it from? He would need it from me. Here's why this is such a big deal. They're saying only God can forgive sins because we have to understand this. Only God was the one sinned against. So now, this is where this is really important. Jesus is making a rather emphatic statement in this moment. He's saying, hey, only God can forgive sins. You guys know that. Son, your sins are forgiven. What's he saying? The one who can forgive sins, the one who's been sinned against, is here. I, it's me. And so notice what happens in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 7. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that thus they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, Jesus is offering a rhetorical question. But, and we know this because of the way he phrased it. He says, which is easier to say to the man who is paralyzed. Now, the reason why we know it's rhetorical is because both of those things are not easy to say. As a matter of fact, they're not only not easy to say, these are impossibilities to say. If, if you bring to me a man this morning who is paralyzed and you set him before me and I looked at him and said, hey, uh, your sins are forgiven or, hey, get up and walk, both of those things are equally hard for me to say. Why? I don't have that kind of authority. But Jesus is saying, which of them are easier to say? In other words, if you bring before me a paralytic man, it is just as easy for me to say, son, your sins are forgiven, as it is for me to say, get up and walk. Why? Because neither one's hard for me. I can actually do both. So he's making a, a statement of, of authority here, and he says this. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Listen to this. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and walk. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were amazed. And listen, they glorified God saying this, we've never seen anything like this. We never saw anything like this. This is going to be really important for later. What are they saying? This is completely new. 
I want to uh, start this morning by telling you about uh, when I, the day I was ordained. Now, ordination may not seem like a, a big deal to most of you, but that was the day where I legally became Reverend William D. Wilson, okay? And it would just make my day if you never called me Reverend William D. Wilson. I hate that. I, I don't feel very uh, reverential, right? But on the day I got ordained, that became my legal title, Reverend William D. Wilson. I became uh, uh, ordained reverend, all right? And on that day that I was ordained, my dad was actually in the ordination council. He was a deacon, and uh, man, I hope that some of you can get and meet my dad. Uh, he's a, a great guy. I love him. Uh, one of the, probably the godliest man I've ever met. But in that ordination council, he was talking to a, a an aspiring young preacher who loved theology and the Bible, right? But in that moment, it, he probably knew this better than I did. I, I was in love with all the things that Christians can get in love with sometimes that sometimes don't make a difference. So he was talking to a guy who at that moment, uh, and this was probably eight years ago now, I guess, that I, what I actually loved doing was trying to understand the Bible. I loved like debating Calvinism versus Arminianism, right? And I loved like trying to read the Bible and understand whether there was a rapture or no rapture, right? And I loved to try to read the Bible and try to understand whether it was pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib. Some of you are like, what trib are you talking about, okay? That's my point. I, I, I was, I, I was kind of lost in some of the things that being a young pastor means, right? And falling in love with this stuff. And my dad, on the day I was ordained, I think he, he knew that I needed, I was always going to have to fight to keep my priorities in order. I want to tell you what he said to me. And I, some of you have heard me say this before, but my dad looked at me when I was getting ordained. He said, your job is not to win theological debates. Your job is not to have all the answers. Here's what he said. Your job is to take as many people with you to heaven as you can. And here's the thing. Sometimes we can get so caught up in doing the church thing. We can get so caught up in coming in, going out, serving on Sundays. We can get so caught up with learning new things and making sure we have all the answers. We can get so caught up with filling our heads with knowledge and doing the Bible studies. We can sing all the songs that have ever been written. But if we miss this reality, listen to me, if we miss this reality, we miss the very heart of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I came, I came to win theological debates. That's not what he said. He said, I came to give you all the answers that you don't have. No, you know what he said? He said, I came to seek and save the lost. And if I can be honest with you, about eight years later, I'm not so concerned with debating Calvinism and Arvinianism. I'm not so concerned with knowing all the answers. I'd still love to talk with you about that if you want to, but more than anything... In my life, in my family's life, I'm getting more and more concerned with being this kind of man who brings people by whatever means necessary to Jesus. And I'm really concerned that we would be these kind of people, that we would be a church that is after the heart of Jesus to say, we are going to seek and save the lost. Let me tell you this. Let me encourage you with this. Christianity that is too civilized and too privatized to share what Jesus has done for us is a useless faith. Christianity that's too civilized, it's too prim, it's too proper. Christianity that's too privatized, it's about me and Jesus. Christianity that's too privatized to share what Jesus has done for us is useless. And I don't want us to be a people who have useless faith. So today I want us to answer this question. How do we bring people to Jesus? How do we bring people to Jesus? Listen, when I was growing up, this used to be 
uh, common vocabulary in the church. We used to use terms like this. We used to use terms like soul winning. We used to use terms like uh, bring, see, bring the lost to the baptismal, right? Somewhere along the way, we got so caught up with modern vocabulary that we left behind the essential question. How do we as Christians pursue the heart of Jesus and how do we bring people to Jesus Christ? How do you and I bring people to Jesus Christ? Because here's what my dad understood when he, told, he talked to me on this ordination council. My dad understood that the job of every Christian was to bring people to Jesus. So today what we're going to do to understand how to answer this question, how do we bring people to Jesus, we're going to look and put ourselves in the place of these four men to see what they were willing to do to bring people to Jesus. Here's the first thing we need to do if we want to be people who bring people to Jesus. We need to acknowledge the solution. We need to acknowledge the solution. If we're going to be people who bring other people to Jesus, we have got to be willing to acknowledge the solution. The first thing that we begin to notice from this narrative is that these four friends, and, and evidently the, the paralytic, believed that Jesus Christ could solve this man's problem. All right, that, that's almost a, a, a presupposition for everything that's happening here. These four men are, are looking at their friend. I, I don't know why, but I, I've called this paralyzed man John all morning long. I don't know why, but they, let's call the paralyzed man John. We're not, it, we, his name uh, is not given to us. So th these four men, who are also unnamed, they look to the paralyzed man John, and they believe that Jesus can solve John's problem of paralyzation. And now, let's be clear, this isn't without warrant, because if you go back and you read Mark chapter 1, what we find in Mark chapter 1 is that Jesus is beginning to make a name for himself in Israel as someone who heals the sick and cleans the lepers. And you go back in Mark chapter 1, and what they find is that, you, that Jesus goes into the city, and he lays his hands on those who are sick, and all of a sudden, the people who are sick are no longer sick. And, and there's this one really interesting story, and this is only interesting if you kind of know the background of the Old Testament, in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus cleanses a leper. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but in the Old Testament, whenever a leper touched someone, the person that they touched became unclean. Now, what we find in Mark chapter 1 is that's not how it works with Jesus. That whenever the leper comes to Jesus, Jesus touches the leper, and instead of Jesus becoming unclean, Jesus cleanses the leper. So they, they, they honestly believe that Jesus can solve their problems, and it seems like they've got good reason to believe that. Imagine the conversation. The four paralyzed men come in on their, their weekly visit to John, right? Because John can't go anywhere. He's paralyzed. He's homebound. And they're coming to see their friend. They're coming to see John. And they say, John, you will not believe the good news we have. John, there's this guy named Jesus. He's from our hometown. He's from Capernaum. And John, Jesus has the power to heal people. And John says, nah, that sounds great, but there's no way he can heal me. And they look to him and they say, John, here's what we know. If he can cleanse the leper, surely he can heal you. John, isn't it worth a shot? And so they begin to believe that Jesus is the solution to the problem. So because they believe Jesus is the solution to this man's problem, they become passionate about bringing this man to Jesus. Let's connect the dots here. The reason so many of us do not speak to people about Jesus is because we do not believe that Jesus is the solution to their problems. The reason why we look out on people's lives and we, we look and we, we misdiagnose their problems 
They've got a lot of stuff going on, and what we think is, well, they need an easier time. They need a couple good breaks. Well, they've got a lot of stuff going on, and they've made some poor decisions. Well, they need to make some better decisions. And so what we do is we misdiagnose their problems. What they need is X when actually what they need is Jesus. And because we don't believe Jesus is the solution to their problems, we keep our mouth shut about him. But these men believe that Jesus is the solution to this guy's paralyzation. However, I love the story this turn, the, the turn the story takes because Jesus is about to come and show us just how much he's come to fix. He hadn't just come to fix paralyzation. These men thought that Jesus was the solution to this man's surface-level problem. The problem that you can most readily identify in this man's life was paralyzation. But, listen to me, that was not the man's most significant problem. Now, the same thing that's true of the man is true of us. Where, although we may have many surface-level problems in our life, the most significant problem that we have is not the surface-level problem. The most significant problem we have is the spiritual problem. So let me put it to you this way. And if I could just be as plain as possible. Paralyzation is not as big of a problem as damnation is. Financial issues is not as big a problem as not knowing Jesus. Not knowing how your marriage is going to make it is not as big of a problem as not knowing how to get into heaven. All of those problems, listen to me, while important, are surface level and not spiritual. Jesus has come to fix the most significant problem, which is spiritual. Notice what happens. Verse 4 and 5. It says, When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, get up and walk. It's not what he said. Jesus looks at this problem, man, and he diagnoses his problem not as what the man thinks his most significant problem is. Jesus diagnoses his most significant problem as the sin that separates him from God. So what does he say? He says the most significant problem you have is not walking again. The most significant problem you have is that you don't know Jesus. You don't have a Savior that can forgive your sin. I love the way Alistair Begg says this. He says this, It would be better for you to lie flat on your back all of your life and make it to heaven than to dance through life and go to hell. Let me read that again. That's good. It would be better for you to lie flat on your back and go to heaven all of your life than to dance through life and go to hell. So Jesus says, This is not the most significant problem you have. The most significant problem you have is that you have sin in your life. Now, real quick, let's make a connection that I think Jesus is making here. I don't believe that Jesus was saying that this man was in the state he was in because of any sin that he committed. Here's the truth. We don't know why this man was paralyzed. What we do know is that infirmity, okay, or extend it to anything else in life, infirmity, pain, trials, tribulations, problem are not always the result of sin. Let me be clear. They are sometimes the result of sin. If you leave here today and you go by a Sphinx on your way home, get a 12-pack of Bud Light and get on 385, drink that 12-pack and go 156 mile an hour and get in a wreck and you are paralyzed, that is a result of sin. Okay? We're all clear on that. All right? But Jesus is not saying that every infirmity is a result of sin. 
What we do know is that not every infirmity, infirmity is, not every problem, not every trial is a result of sin. However, listen to this. Every infirmity, every problem, every trial, everything we experience in life is symbolic of a greater problem. The brokenness that sin has introduced into the world. So get this, what Jesus is saying is, you're not in this condition because of sin in your life. But you want to know why you're in this condition? Because of sin in the world. Sin is the problem that leads to all other surface level problems. He's saying this man, you're in this condition because of sin. So your greatest need though is not to walk, your greatest need is to be forgiven of sin. And guess what? I'm the one that can meet that need. Then, get this, afterward, Jesus begins to address the superficial problems. Now, here's why I think this is important for us to understand. As Christians, we need to understand this process because the people in our lives do have very real surface-level problems. And even if those surface-level problems are not the result of personal sin, they are the result of sin in a broken world. And get this, the solution to those people's problems is not found in any physical fixing. It's found in Jesus Christ. When pe what people need more than anything else is the forgiveness of Jesus to cover their sin problem. Then Jesus will deal with the surface. Now, Jesus doesn't always deal with the surface, but sometimes he deals with the surface. And here's, what, here's why this is so important. If we are going to get, bring people to Jesus, we must understand and acknowledge that Jesus is the solution to every problem we face in the world. The reason why so many of us don't tell people about Jesus is because we don't think he's the solution to their problem. It goes even deeper. The reason why so many of us don't tell people is because we don't believe Jesus is the solution to our problems. We have to acknowledge the solution. Point number two is this. We have to begin to expect obstacles. We have to begin to expect op obstacles if we're going to bring people to Jesus. Listen, there's, there's a vein of, of Christianity that I think may be the most annoying to me in the world. It's called, I, I call it victimization Christianity. It's that when something don't go right in your life, you assume that you're a victim of something in the world, right? And so here's what I mean by that. You share Jesus with somebody, they reject your, they reject your offer, and then you back off because, man, I'm just I'm suffering, all right? You're not suffering, you're not a victim, you're just like Jesus, okay? Jesus said I, he came, the light came into the world, and guess what? The world knew him not, okay? We're not always victims. Hear me say this. Sometimes they're just obstacles in the way of us living a godly life. Sometimes they're just obstacles in the way of us bringing people to Jesus. These four men were evidently prepared to face obstacles on their way to Jesus. They weren't to turn the slice. I don't know what they said to each other before they left that day, but they, they evidently had talked about how far they were willing to go to get to him. They, the reason why I know that is because there doesn't seem to be any pause in the story. They get there and they see the crowd and they're like, all right, boys, plan B, right? They, they are prepared for obstacles. They refuse to quit. Now, this is a lesson for us. As we bring people to Christ, we will be met with obstacles. Listen, we are literally in a war. Do you think that the enemy is going to be okay with us recruiting people from his side to fight the battle? 
Jesus said that the, the, the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. That's true. We're going to win in the end. But Jesus did not say that the uh, gates of hell would throw up a white flag easily. We're in a war. Listen, you may be here this morning, and you may be like, this may be your first time, and you don't know why I keep talking about winning people to Jesus. That sounds kind of weird, but you were invited to here by someone. That's what they're trying to do to you, okay? Come back next week. We'll talk about that. But we're going to be met with obstacles. As a matter of fact, that, there are a lot of obstacles that I see pretty readily available in this text. Think about this with me. Don't you think that carrying a crippled man was an obstacle? I, wouldn't this story have been so much easier for the four men if John could actually walk a little bit? Right? If John wasn't full-fledged paralyzed, but then they got, to the, they got to the door and one of them looked at him and said, John, I tell you, bud, I think if you can get up and walk the rest of the way, you can probably elbow your way in, you know? No. Well, they were dealing with a crippled man. They were dealing with a paralyzed man. Now, I don't know if you know this, but paralyzed people can't help, right? That in this situation, he was not offering much help physically. As a matter of fact, here's what we need to understand. We are dealing with spiritually paralyzed people, people who are not interested in helping us get them to know Jesus. You want to know why? They don't know they need Jesus. So, and let me give you one more. The Bible says we're not spiritually paralyzed. The Bible says we're spiritually dead. Do you know what dead people do? Go to a cemetery and take a, just hang out a couple hours. You know what dead people do? Nothing. And the, so we are bringing people who are not interested in helping us get to Jesus to Jesus. We shouldn't expect that to be easy. I don't think any of those four men picked up the mat that day and thought, okay, this is going to be the easiest thing we've ever done. They expected obstacles. Not only facing crippled people, facing crippled people, that sounded, not only are we experiencing obstacles by bringing people who are spiritually crippled, we're also facing people who are careless. Think about this. This story really amazes me as I, as I walk through it. The people who were at the door crowding the, the guy who was par paralyzed out. Because we're all decent people here, right? I, I think naturally what we would have done is as, as we would turned and saw the guy coming who was paralyzed, who, we would have assumed this guy can be healed if he gets to Jesus. So you know what I should do? I should get out of the way. Right? Hey, guy, why don't, why don't y'all go ahead and walk through the door right here? Now, Instead, what we find are people who are more concerned with their proximity to Jesus than getting someone who doesn't know Jesus in the door to get, find Jesus. Now, here's why that's so important. I don't think any of these people who were careless were bad people. I don't think they looked at it and they were like, they saw the paralyzed guy and they were like, not today, John, right? They, I don't think they were evil. They were just careless. And church, let me tell you, we can very easily cross over into the careless when we become more concerned about our proximity to Jesus and our preferences and our relationship with Jesus than someone who needs to have a relationship with Jesus. When we come in and, and we notice everything that's wrong. Listen, I, can I tell you, I'm natural. I think I'm probably a pessimist by nature. Like, I, I see, I see, but we have, to, we have to avoid that tendency. When we come in and see everything that's wrong, well, I wish the lights were a little brighter. I wish the music was a little less loud. I wish the kids' people were a little nicer. I'm just kidding. The kids' people are great, right? I, I wish that the student ministry met at the, nine, at the 11, 10 hour. We can come in and we can start to get so obsessed with our proximity to Jesus that we forget that there's a mission going on. 
We don't get to be careless in that way. And here's the last thing. We're not only facing careless people, we're facing critical people. Notice what Jesus says. Or notice what the text says. That when all was said and done, they were mad, they were critical of Jesus, basically because he was introducing a new way. Now think about this with me. You know what the greatest threat to a church is? People who are not willing to embrace a new way. You know the famous last words of every church is what? We've never done it that way before. And so listen, here's why this is such a big deal. As we go through this, we are going to be trying to bring people who are spiritually paralyzed to Jesus, and we're going to face people who are careless and people who are critical. And here's why this is really important. We have to be willing to go from obstacle to obstacle to obstacle and not experience setbacks, not give in, not say, well, I guess I'm just not going to do it. We are called to bring people to Jesus, whether it's easy or not. Finally, last thing we've got to do, we've got to be willing to do whatever it takes. These four men obviously were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Think about this scene with me. I've tried to, my best to put myself in this scene. These men were so willing to get their friend to Jesus that they even resorted, resorted to the destruction of property. Now, scholars tell us that this was probably Jesus's I mean, uh, Peter's house that, that Jesus was teaching in this day. Can you imagine this scene through the eyes of Peter? Peter's sitting there and he's listening. And Jesus is preaching. He's probably giving Jesus some a amens, you know. Uh, amen in Greek and amen are in English are the same word. So uh, he's probably saying literally amen, Jesus, okay. And he's preaching. And all of a sudden, he feels dirt fall down on his, on his shoulder. And he looks up and he's like, man, I thought I fixed that roof already. And then Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, a big old piece hits Jesus. And he's like, man, this, this is not good, right? And, and all of a sudden, the, 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 the roof caves a little more, and Peter starts to get a little concerned until there becomes a hole, and a head peeks through the hole. <laughs> and at that point, Peter's probably like, hey, I know you really want to hear Jesus. Can you stop, though? Like, this is my house. And the guy says, hold on, I'll talk to you in just a second. And they keep taking the roof out and all of a sudden where there was one head there's a hole with four heads around it and they begin to lower a man into the bottom now imagine this story from the four men's perspective they come up on the crowd they see the crowd and they say john there's no way we're going to be able to get you in there man but john don't worry we're going to find a way we're going to find a way and one of them says hey let's go up on let's go up on the roof well, the one says, what are we going to do on the roof? He says, just trust me, i got a plan, let's go up on the roof. And they get up on the roof, and they're looking, he says, they, they get looking, they said, this doesn't seem like a very good plan, right? And one of them looks at the roof and says, you know what? This is going to cost a lot of money if we mess this roof up. We're going to have to pay to have it fixed. And the other, one of them looks to the other man and says, okay, that's what it takes. And another one's looking and says, man, this is actually a really good roof. When Peter fixed this roof, he did a really good job. This is going to be a lot of work for us to fix this roof, to, to break this roof. And one of them looks, the other one says, all right, it's going to take a lot of work. We've got to do it. And the other one says, man, do you realize how many people are in that house? It, people are literally going to think that we're crazy if we tear a hole in this roof. And the other one says, let them think that we're crazy. We've got to get John to Jesus. And then the other one says, man, Peter, this is Peter's house. If we mess up, Peter's not going to talk to us anymore if we put a hole in it. Let's lose a friend. Just get John to Jesus. 
Here's the question we've got to start asking. How far are we willing to go to get the people who need to be next to Jesus next to Jesus? Are you willing to lose time? Are you willing to lose money? Are you willing to lose friends? Are you willing to lose respect so that you can get people to Jesus? Because let me tell you this, church. I want, I, I want you to write this down. Mark it as true, okay? No one comes to know Jesus without someone making a sacrifice. No one comes to know Jesus without someone making a sacrifice. If we're going to reach people for Jesus, it's going to cost somebody something. Nobody has ever entered this baptismal pool without somebody sacrificing something. So how, where do we go from here? Here's where we're going to close with this, particularly with this message. I've got two closings. The first part is this. For today's message, what we have decided as a church that we're going to ask every member to do is to commit that over the next two years that there is one person in your life that you are willing to do whatever it takes to bring that one person to Jesus Christ. That you are willing to say, I am willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to get this one person to Jesus. I'm willing to sacrifice my time. I'm willing to sacrifice my money. I'm willing to sacrifice my comfort. When they call, I'm going to be there. When I have an opportunity to speak about Jesus, I'm going to take it. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get them to know Jesus. And I understand that that might require some sacrifice on my part to do it. But we understand this. No one comes to know Jesus without someone sacrificing something. How far are you willing to go? Now listen to me. We'll talk about the other commitments in just a minute. But I, I want to be honest with you. I, I love you too much to beat around the bush about this. If you are someone who cannot commit to that, listen, I love you, but I think you've come to the wrong church. Because what I want more than anything else is to be a church full of those four men to be a church full of those four women, to say, I'll do whatever it takes to get somebody to Jesus. If you're a first-time guest here and you're like, this sounds weird, come back next week. It'll be better, okay? <laughs> now, let, let me close the initiative with this. For the past three weeks, we've been talking about this one initiative, right? And, and I think a lot, there are a lot of questions for like how, how this one initiative comes about. This one initiative... It's something that's going to actually start in 2022 and will guide our church, uh, the direction of our church for 2022 and 2023. Now, let me just tell you what this is over the past two weeks, or past three weeks. All that we've done over the past three weeks is essentially lay before you the direction of our church over the past three weeks. I know that this seems uh, big and grandiose. All that what we're really saying is that this is what we've decided over the, next, uh, over the next two years. This is what our church is going to go after and pursue. Now, you might be saying, how did we come up with this, okay? If you were here um, two years ago, you were here when we did the all-in initiative. Now, listen, the all-in initiative, you might be thinking, this sounds a lot like all-in. Can I just tell you? It is a lot like all-in. But the All-In initiative lasted two years, and about six months ago, what we started deciding was, okay, well, it, 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 over the next little bit, we're going to be coming to the end of the All-In initiative. What does God want for our church over the next two years? And so listen, here's what I love about this plan. Here's what I love about this direction. What we've decided is that we're not just going to be a church that throws noodles against the wall. We actually want to know what we're doing. We want to know what we're going. And each part of this plan 
has the fingerprints of different people from different parts of leadership all over it. Here's what I love. that This is the entire church leadership coming together to say this is where we're going. And so here's why this is important. Here's why I tell you all this. Each one of you had a commitment card in your chairs. Now you might be asking, what's the point in a commitment card? I want to tell you why. This is actually just a tangible yes. That's what this is. The reason why we put out these commitment cards is because we want to be able to say, we've told you where we think God's taking us over the next two years. Would you lay your yes on the table to go with us? That's what these commitment cards are. So here's what I want you to do. And I want everybody to do this, okay? That way nobody looks at anybody else like they're weird, okay? And I want you to find one. We can do one per family. I want you to find one of these commitment cards somewhere around you. There's some on the uh, pews in front of you or beside you. I want everybody to go ahead and find, find one. Even if you have no intentions of filling this out, will you find one? Here's why. Because it'll, everybody will look at you and they'll think you're filling it out. And then nobody will judge you, right? You Christians, y'all are some judgmental folks. I know how y'all are, all right? But what are the commitments? Listen, what are the commitments? I'm going to lay before you what, how, here's what I'm going to do. Listen, I think my daughter's about to come in here and turn her card in. I'm going to explain these commitments to you like I explained to my five-year-old daughter, okay? My five-year-old daughter will fill one of these out. If you, if you don't, Danny is on top of it, okay? Here are the, the commitments, like I explained it to Danny. Commitment number one, I commit to being an example of unity and, going and, and praying for unity. We commit to one church. Here's that way I explained it to Danny. Danny, do you love all five campuses of our church and want all five campuses of our church to accomplish the mission of Jesus? And will you pray for that? And will you commit to, to, to that? And here's what Danny said. Yes, okay? All right, uh, she's in here now. She's about to be super embarrassed, okay? Then I got to the second part. And I said, okay, church. She's in here because she's about to turn a card in. I, I said, Danny, the second commitment we're asking you to make is would you commit to one prayer? And here's what that prayer is. We were here last week. Would you surrender yourself to say, God, use me, that we would get to the point that where we would be like Isaiah and say, God, all that I have is yours, okay? Now, listen, you, real quick, you're going to notice the financial piece there. I'm going to visit that at the very end. Just skip over it. If you can commit to that and saying, God, this is what I want. I want to be part of one church, and I want to be used for you. Listen, ignore the financial piece for just a second and just check that box. Yes, I can commit to that. I, be, I want my life to be used by God, okay? Last thing is this. We commit to one life. So I said, Danny, will you commit to intentionally going to school and telling other people about Jesus? Now, I didn't make her choose one person because I'm not sure she understands the, the dynamics of salvation and lostness yet. But here's what I asked her. Will you commit to telling people about Jesus? And she said yes. Okay? So those are the three commitments. If you are on board for those three commitments, then check that box. Okay? Now, pause. Let's talk about the financial piece there. Because a lot of times we see that financial piece and we're like, hold up, we found it. It's actually about the money, all right? Let me just tell you this, okay? Number one, in my conversation with Danny, we got the, one of the reasons why we put this on there is because when we say surrender to God, we mean surrender every part of your life to God, okay? Part of that is finances. Danny got to that part on the card and she was like, wait a second. You mean, to, this is not a joke. You mean to tell me that I've got to give my money to God? Here's what she said on the way home when we were talking about it. I feel like God's asking a lot, okay? <laughs> but here's, what, here's the deal. If we're going to commit, we commit every part of that. And part of our life is finances. We're not leaving any off the table. So part of the conversation I even had to have with my little girl is this. That, listen, we're not leaving anything. Either God gets it all or God gets none of it. Now, listen, you might say, well, I'm a private person. I don't want to list the details of those financial commitments. All right? Are you willing to make the financial commitments? Because if so, you can still check yes. Okay? 
But I want to talk to you about this in just a second. A lot of preachers feel really weird when it comes to talking about money. I just want to tell you, I don't feel weird about this, okay? Because, listen, it takes money to operate the church. That's just the reality of it, okay? And let me just give you some incentive for what it means for Harrison Bridge if we meet some of these goals, that we can actually get to a place where we can make the additions necessary, okay? We've taught Brian Owens in this room. Brian can, uh, me and Brian have talked over the past couple of weeks. Uh, uh, every option of expansion for Harrison Bridge has been discussed. Can I tell you, we've talked about knocking this wall out. We've talked about knocking those walls out and going that way. We've talked about we've got a contractor coming to look at some kids' rooms. That's already in progress. We've talked about some modulars in the back. We've even talked about what it would look like to go in the front there, okay? You want me to tell you the limiting factor of all those things? Money. It just takes money, guys. And so I don't feel, I don't feel weird about it. Here's what I'm asking Harrison Bridge in particular. I'm asking to everybody at Harrison Bridge who gives nothing to start giving something. To start working in your budget to say, okay, I'm going to give to God's mission in the church. And then I'm asking those of you who give something but do not tithe to begin to make a regular tithe, a 10% offering of your lifestyle because I believe that's the biblical floor. It's not the biblical ceiling, it's the biblical floor. Okay? So that's where we're at with all this. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you just a couple of real quick minutes to look over this card and fill it out. If you need to pray with your spouse, now's the time to do that. If you need to have any conversations about that, now's the time. Uh, if, you, if you don't need to do that, would you just pray for just a moment as we go into this, and then we'll, we'll come back up, and I'll tell you what to do in just a second. All right, real quick, here's, here's the way I want to close today. If you have a card and you're making a commitment today, I would challenge you, when this invitation song starts, would you just come drop this, uh, this uh, card in there as a sign of commitment, as a sign of putting your yes on the table? Uh, hear me say this. We've had countless families already do that. We, before this Sunday even started, we've had eight, we had 80 families do it. These baskets are already full. Would you just come add yours to that in a sign of a tangible yes before God, saying, okay, this is where we're going. This is, I'm on board for it. Would you do that? And also, I want to offer you the chance to come and pray at the altar about how God might use you over the next two years. So as this invitation song starts, would you do that? I, listen, I'm not going to come put one in. I've already put one in. I felt like it would be pretty disingenuous to put one in three times, okay? But I, I, I'm, I'm going forward, and I want to ask you if you would too, would you drop yours in as the invitation song starts?